there are so many opportunities. There are so much perspective. There is so much learning. There are so many things that can happen on the other side of that first quote-unquote failure. But if you're not willing to walk through that first door, none of it's going to come to life. Welcome back to the Impact Entrepreneur Show. My name is Mike Flynn, and I am honored to be your host. Our mission here on the Impact Entrepreneur Show is not just to inspire you, but also to help you tap into and begin to believe in your God-given potential and purpose. That's right, baby. We want you to not only be inspired, but experience breakthrough. And we do that on this podcast by interviewing incredible people who are using their experiences, their skill set, their platforms to have a game-changing impact in the lives of others. And here's the thing. None of these folks are simply sitting back, living a life of leisure. They have things to do, places to go, and lives to impact. Speaking of that... Tommy Baker is an author, podcaster, fitness junkie, and the founder of Resist Average Academy. His mission is to help you live a life that you cannot wait to wake up for. Tommy's entrepreneurial career started in gyms, where he started to notice something that would eventually change the course of his life and career. One person can walk into a facility and experience transformational results, while another person with a similar background and natural ability might barely scratch the surface. This realization turned into a fascination, so Tommy started to learn more about neuroscience, human behavior, and positive psychology. In the process, he realized that those were really the things that lit him up. So as Tommy combined these three new insights with his fitness knowledge, he identified the one thing that we all need to be successful. We need to operate with an incredibly powerful foundation, a strong connection between mind, body, and spirit. Tommy recommends two techniques for reverse engineering success. The first is imagining what your life would look like in a decade. What would it look like if your biggest dreams were realized? And the second, imagining your life five years from now as if nothing has changed. How does that feel? Actually, that is an incredibly powerful exercise that will crystallize some things for you. One of the things I added to that part of the conversation was an exercise I did where I actually wrote out my eulogy from the point of view of my future adult son. Anyway, but above all, Tommy believes that if we continue to avoid the uncomfortable truth about our lives then we're going to miss out on what we want and what we're capable of. And as he says, radical honesty is the first step to changing anything. This is a great episode. So bust out your pens and paper, take some notes, and brace for impact. Tommy Baker, welcome to the Impact Entrepreneur Show, my friend. Very excited that we finally, after many calendar and technology Flubs that we got this scheduled. Mike, it means the world. And I love what you're doing with this platform and your message. Thank you for having me. Yeah, Ben. Uh, so I always kick things off with the origin story where, where things started out. And I'd love to learn a little bit about your childhood. Specifically, one of my favorite questions to ask is who were some of your childhood heroes and why? 
Yeah, that's awesome, man. Um, for me, I, I feel so blessed that I grew up in two completely different cultures. So one was uh, in Bogota, Colombia, and one was in um, outside of New York. And so having that contrast at a young age, and we moved back and forth a lot, it gave me the gift of perspective. So I knew we were pretty blessed here in the US compared to some of the stuff that was happening um, back in Colombia, just the experiences that you have. You know, you go to movie theater and guys have AK-47s on them and there's just a lot of tension. Um, so that was huge. That perspective gave me a lot of gratitude uh, for being here. And I mean, the heroes were, were you know, at that time, it was, uh, it was the sports stars, man. An obsession with uh, Michael Jordan and, and those type of athletes um, had all of the posters and, and stuff like that. But yeah, those were those were my you know people that were chasing the impossible were what lit me up. When you reflect back, obviously you know you didn't necessarily know that Michael Jordan was pursuing his raw talent, right? You didn't know his backstory. You didn't know what was going on. But the media definitely highlighted it and told you he's the underdog, right? And he's the best, right? <laughs> So when you reflect back on Michael Jordan, for example, and you look at the, the attributes that we all know and love about him, what do you think spoke to your, your soul as a child? I think that children have Im immense wisdom that we don't even tap into. So, so it, was, it was like the truth in you recognizing the truth in, in him. Yes. And what, when you reflect back, what lessons do you draw from Michael Jordan? Yeah, I saw, I saw two things. And now in retrospect, I can contextualize them better. One was uh, his signature tongue out expression. Uh, I just felt like now that I, I can look back on that, and I hadn't really thought about it until you asked me this, but it was like, it was him showcasing his unique self. And that, that tongue out expression, which we all know is such a, is, is just a showcase of that, that unique expression. Of his gift, and then the second thing was, uh, even though he was su he's super intense, and you could tell that to me as a child, I could see him having a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. And so now, in retrospect, when I think about when you're doing something meaningful, it's 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 going to be intense, but you can also have a lot of fun at the same time. And mm -hmm. uh, even though he was a super intense leader, you could just tell that he was he was to see somebody doing what they were meant to do. Is always a great example, whether that's a painter, whether that's a musician, whether that's a podcaster or a speaker. I think it lights something up inside of us. Mm -hmm. 100% agree with that. Do you know who Dave Kirpin is? Have you ever met Dave Kirpin? I don't think so. He is the, uh, he's a multiple New York Times bestselling author, the founder of Likeable Local. He's got an interesting story, actually. He wrote a book called uh, The Art of People, which is a really good, it's kind of a, a modern take on how to win friends and influence people. That was his second book. But anyway, his signature, his unique expression is that he, his thing is he wears orange, like bright, like neon kind of orange, like shoes and, and stuff. Awesome. <laughs> and how he and his wife actually got married, at, they, they, they negotiated to be able to get married in the middle of a baseball game. I think I want to say it was the Mets game or maybe their minor league team. Anyway, fascinating story. But he definitely is one of those guys that also he doesn't walk around or or you know with his tongue hung out like like Michael Jordan, but he wears orange shoes. Do you have a unique expression that is the Tommy Baker signature? And it's now I know who now I know that now I know who you're talking about. Okay. 
you connected that and the, and the baseball thing. I've I've definitely heard that uh, before on on different podcasts. Man, that's a that's a good question. I don't I don't know what comes to mind. I think in 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 the writing that I do, it my unique expression is a punch of radical honesty, mm-hmm. but packaged with a lot of empathy. Mm. So for me, that's what people have told me that connects. It's like, you're going to give it to me straight, but you're also going to say, I've been exactly where you've been. And that resonates. Mm. Who helped cultivate empathy in you? Yeah. I, well, I think growing up in, in two different cultures, it's just different, you know, like just what you're exposed to, what I was exposed to, you know, you're at the traffic lights and you see people with no arms and no legs asking for money. And it's like lots of them, not just one randomly in a bad neighborhood. And it's just so seeing a different side of life, the contrast, just a deeper perspective. And within that empathy. And when I came back to the States, it was always like, oh, like this is not how the rest of the world lives. Mm-hmm. We're actually pretty lucky to be here right now. Right. I would see people in, in Colombia, for example, who were rock stars, really talented, really skilled people, but their the socioeconomic, the ability to move up socioeconomically just wasn't there. So you could be amazing. You could work extremely hard and you were stuck where you started. When you fill in the blanks a little bit for people, why were you traveling back and forth from Colombia to, to, to New York? What, what were your mother and father like? And what was going on in Colombia at the time? Because when people think about Colombia, obviously, you know, there's still, it's still strife with, you know, a, a drug trafficking. You know, gorillas, all that stuff, but it's also this beautiful place that yeah. is full of life and full of um, opportunity for people to to have fun and pursue beauty, truth, and goodness, and all of that stuff. I have some good friends that are from Colombia, and they are some of the most talented entrepreneurs that I've ever encountered, and full of life, and definitely have a zeal for for fun. Yeah. <laughs> no, and there's a there's a funny quote there, and I don't know exactly what it is, but it's like uh, the people down there, like the, the genuine happiness that you feel from people down there, and they say something to the effect of, um, "The reason that we're so happy, it's because we've been through hell." And uh, but yeah, so so one of the reasons it was twofold actually. One was uh, my mom's Colombian, and she wanted us to retain the Colombian culture. Now, the other part was my dad; he was in financial services and banking and stuff like that. Later on, we we so it was sold to us that you know his job was moving back and forth, and partially that was true. But later we found out it was also because they wanted us to retain our Colombian culture and not lose that, which was a kind of hard pill to swallow because there was a lot of challenge, challenges involved. And later to find out that it was more manufactured was was tough. But you look back at the challenge and you get a lot of gifts from that as well. Mm-hmm. You know what? What age were you actually when you first moved from Columbia to New York? First time five, five, then when ten, you, and then about thirteen, and then last time uh, eighteen. So it was like a was lot. It, of, was it Manhattan or where in New York? No, it was outside. It was, it was suburbs. Oh, suburbs. Okay. So what? What was the culture shock like? What? I mean, there had to have been so much cognitive dissonance going on in your head all of those times, but maybe maybe not so much when you were. Five years old because you're kind of going through the flow, but certainly when you're ten and thirteen and you have like you're starting to draw your own conclusions about things, sure. what what were some of the the emotions and the things that you were trying to make sense of? 
Yeah, I mean, the biggest thing at that age is you just want to fit in. Mm-hmm. Just like you want to be, you want to feel that you belong somewhere. And uh, and a lot of times I missed my shot with those, and I felt like I didn't belong at all. You know, kids just grow up differently, different ages, different all of that stuff. Two different cultures. Sometimes I'd hit a home run and I'd it'd be awesome, and then other times I'd be completely on my own and feeling disconnected and alone. And it led me to like to see counterculture in a sense and and, and go to that route. But so wanting to Is fit there in. There a particular moment when you were a kid that you that you can draw back on and reflect on to now today where you felt isolated and alone. Yeah, man. Yeah. I remember one time in, in, in Columbia, there was this, uh, just this, this big gathering, this big event. And, uh, man, I was so, I was, I, I wouldn't even, it was, I was so new and I was so shy that I just, I, I remember like walking through the, the school door to get into the event. And, um, I got out of there, man. I got out of there and I went to this like park, like on the other side of school for the whole day because I wanted to avoid that. Obviously, I got in massive trouble. But um, but that feeling of uh, I don't belong was really palpable. How did you how did you transitioning into later in your life, you know, you're coming of age, you're, you know, becoming an adult and you're still grappling with that strong desire to belong. And that had to kind of fuel, I would imagine. And propel some of the energy behind the resist average movement and the juxtaposition from wanting to belong, but also coming to learn that actually there's a great deal of strength and power in quote unquote not belonging, not being yeah. part of the norm. So, absolutely. How, at what point did you kind of start to reconcile that in your life? Yeah, well, spending so much time alone at a young age, it just made me a deep thinker. Like just super deep thinking, like always just thinking in abstract, like just analyzing stuff. Like just, you know, I feel like you know, we all have these questions in life. Who am I? Why am I here? You know, all of that stuff. And, you know, we all ask them. But for me, I actually had the time and space to start tackling those at a very young age. So that led me down that rabbit hole. It gave me the gift of solitude as well. Like getting to know yourself, even though you don't feel like you belong and you feel uncomfortable in your own skin. Guess what? You, you, you have, you're in your own skin, so you're going to have to learn how to be comfortable with that. And, and what you said through that thinking and through some of the counterculture that came from that, from music and communities that um, you know, were on the outside of the mainstream, I, I totally you know, I started to look at a different perspective and just question things. You know, I, I think it's so healthy to question the norm, question the way things have always been done. Um, there's a fine line between you know, uh, a healthy a skeptic and a cynic, but through the questioning, you start, you start, you know, discovering like, you know, what you really want and, and what you're really about. So that definitely helped um, into what I do now, because I had a lot of inflection points in life where I was like, I'm about to go down this, let's just call it mainstream safe path, whatever that is. And I could feel it palpably. And I took a different direction. And, you know, all these inflection points lead to radically different places. One hundred percent. Yeah. What was the the what did the safe normal path look like for you? Yeah, for me, a, a lot of my family is is in the in the financial game um, in that industry. You know, they both went to uh, you know my my siblings went to the same school, very similar career path. So yeah, it looked it looked like doing that same thing. And um, yeah, I've, I've, I was down going down that path. In 2000, right before uh, the financial crisis, and then 
that crisis was like a, a wake up call of do you really is this do you, is this your path? Mm-hmm. And that that was that was an inflection point where um, it allowed me to make a new decision. Was it a loud no for you, or was there a process that you had to go through, both in solitude by yourself and with others, to help you understand that no, that was not the path for you to take? It was it was strong. It was strong, but the pressure was stronger. Mm-hmm. So. You know, I it's yeah. I specifically I remember uh, walking into the <laughs> admissions office of my uh, university at the time, and uh, I, at the time I was on the path to broadcast journalism, which is just funny, you know, given my the background, the childhood leading up to that. But Dr. John Demartini, he says our biggest voids become our values, et cetera, et cetera. So wanting to be seen, right? But I remember palpably walking in and saying, you know, I'm, I'm changing, I'm changing my major to this, and it was like I knew it wasn't for me. But I knew my parents were going to be stoked, and oh wow, okay, feel it was going to feel safe. And um, but it was one of those moments where you know you're doing something, but it's not for you. <laughs> oh yeah, totally. You know the analogy that I give is you you had your coffee, your souvenir coffee mug moment. You you were doing something, but not necessarily the right thing. You were like you're like this souvenir coffee mug with pens in it. You know, yeah. yes. <laughs> so what attracted you? to do the work that you're doing today. Yeah, so it that initial path led me down towards you know, at the time you know what I was really deeply fascinated with was uh was physical training, physical fitness. So I ended up you know leaving uh the job that I had already uh, kind of stepped into and then launching my own uh business in the fitness space. And then as time passed on, I said, you know, like my interests were so deep in the psychology. It's like, why can someone like Mike come into the facility and somebody just like him, similar background, similar athletics, similar ability? Why, why does one person see transformational long-term results and the other person barely scratches the surface? Like, what is that? And that really led me to neuroscience, human behavior, positive psychology, all of that stuff. And I realized that's really what lit me up. And so about five years after the launch of the first gym, we had a couple of facilities and we were growing, had a big staff. And that's when I had another inflection point. I was like, I, I need to make a change because my obsession is somewhere else. And it's hard to, it's harder to change when you've, when you've declared that, that, you're, that something that you, that project that you're working on or a business is very meaningful for you. And then to say, it's time to pivot. You know, we can all pivot when it's, when we, it's clear that we don't like it. Um, so that brought its own challenges. I actually love that. I actually did not know that you had a fitness background, but I love that that's where you started because I actually believe that I'm a CrossFitter as well. I'm in yeah. Santa Cruz. Love it. You know, I, I think that CrossFit in particular, any form of physical activity that requires you to bring your three speeds of thought together in one, your, your awareness, your attention, and your mood or your energy, and bring them all together. Yes. It is the fastest way to remind yourself, your brain, and your body how powerful you are. Yeah. And because our greatest need you've probably read some of dr albert bandura's stuff on self efficacy and all of that right i mean our de- greatest desire is to feel effective right to feel like we're we matter we're good at something you know and especially today more than in any other era we have 
outsourced our decision-making. Even Jordan Peterson's talking about it. He talks about like the fact that we need more responsibility, not less, right? And so how have you structured your life? Because we're running businesses, right? So we do need to make sure that we're automating some things that have the, the, the least you know, impact on, on our time um, and, and our revenue. But we also need to be cognizant of the fact that we need to be in charge of our decision-making process so that we can continue to feel effective and confident and efficacious ourselves. So how do you structure your life to make sure that you are fully living your potential and effectiveness in the world? Yeah, absolutely, man. And I, I love some of the stuff that you referenced there. For me, it's always about building the most powerful foundation that I can. And so when I say foundation, it's like the mind, body, spirit connection, you know, fertilizing and nourishing that every single day because that's the most important part. I wrote in one of my books, everybody wants to build the home theater on the third floor. Nobody wants to get messy with the soil and make sure that the structural foundation is intact. And so I believe often that we're, we, we're making dis- poor decisions just because physically we're not in alignment, mentally we're not in alignment, and emotionally we're all over the place. And so it becomes really hard, like you said, to, 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 you know, at the end of the day, what is our lives, but choices and decisions compounded over time. And um, one of the things that I've found is that we often make decisions based on who we've been in the past, some prior identity of, that we believed ourselves to be, which is why change can be so difficult because... We see the possibility, but we're making decisions from who we've been. And so our, our progress is stunted. Mm-hmm. So just to answer your question, yeah, it's, it's building that foundation for me, mind, body, and spirit, which is why, just like you, physicality has always been so important. Not in the, not in the traditional sense of, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm going to look amazing and that's going to give me some false confidence, but like that deep foundation. And I know with you doing CrossFit, like for, for me, the reason I got so attracted to that was a couple of reasons. One, deep flow states that I accessed. I was like, how can I... I'm so... This, this is pushing me so much to my physical limits that uh, I have no choice but to be so present. And within that presence, I'm abundant. I'm creative. Um, I'm getting ideas. I'm making synapses in my brain that I, I could yeah, never totally. do normally, right? And then the second thing was very practical. I wanted to get to know who I, who I was when life got hard, when things got difficult, when my legs were burning, my lungs were on fire. Would I would I do shortcuts? You know, would I do one less rep, or would I push above? And so, um, to me, it's all about that foundation. And I don't think we spend enough time and energy on that foundation because we just want that. We want the home theater, man. Everybody wants the home theater, right? Totally. A big shout out to Derek Clark, aka the Rapping Dag, past guest of the Impact Entrepreneur Show back on episode like 112, I believe. He posted on Instagram a powerful video review of Master the Master the Key and a copy I sent him. And I actually posted that to Facebook. So if you wanted to go to Facebook, you could check that out. But here is another review of the week 
of Master the Key, a game-changing, transformational book that you have the opportunity to go get for yourself right now by hitting pause and heading to Amazon and picking up a copy or two of this transformational book for yourself. But this one comes in from Daryl Perkins. Highly relatable. Mike's first novel is a highly relatable story for anyone looking to better understand their values and motivations and find affirmation, direction, and meaning in their life. Exercises throughout the book help reinforce the lessons being shared and provide a valuable experience for the reader. Thank you, Daryl, for purchasing the book, for working out with me at CrossFit, for your support and encouragement on this journey. You can hit pause right now and head over to Amazon and pick up a copy for yourself and a copy for some loved ones, some colleagues, friends. Pass this transformational message along. Now back to the show. I love that you just talked about some of the benefits of working hard, right? So like one of the, it's it's not just like pseudoscience, it's actually rooted in science that when you do hard work like, like CrossFit and these high intensity workouts where you've had to bring your mind and your body together at a, at a fast pace often, after that, you have these new neural pathways that are firing that weren't there before or had been lying dormant. And it is the perfect time to go and create. It is the perfect time to go and be quiet and find solitude, which is going to be harder than the workout that you just did. That's true. <laughs> you know, and, yes. but it's going to be so powerful. Like I was telling somebody, they were like, how do you? Build confidence, and and I said, well, I don't think that you, I don't think anybody ever arrives at confidence. I don't think confidence is a destination. Confidence is a is a process. The very the word confidence means with faith, right? So you're in order to have confidence, you have to constantly be acting with faith. And people want comfort, right? People want when they think I want to be confident, they actually feel say I want I want to feel comfortable, right? But the idea of silence is going to be the most powerful place after doing something incredibly physically and mentally challenging where the biggest breakthroughs happen. I love those two because it's two completely opposite sides of the spectrum, which is so powerful. One, you have the intensity and the other, you have the nothingness. Mm-hmm. And um, I structure my days this way. I have a lot of intensity. That that model, like on a micro and a macro scale, I have a lot of intensity to my days. A lot of structured, discipline, routine, like just tight bubbles of work. And then on the other side, I have a lot of white space and nothingness. And what mm-hmm. I find, Mike, is that a lot of people, and certainly myself in the past, we just live in this middle where we don't get the benefits of the intensity, whether it's physical intensity, focus intensity, et cetera, et cetera. So we, we don't get those benefits, which means that we tell ourselves we don't have enough time available, et cetera, et cetera, to get the benefits of the nothingness, the quiet, the solitude, the nature, whatever the practice is. Uh, and we live in what I call that, that messy middle where it's like, we yeah. clear and we have, pr- we have trouble um, processing emotions. We have trouble listening to our intuition. We, we make decisions based on 
things that we may not even want, but it's just, we, we can't, the signal isn't clear. And I think when we live on both sides of those spectrum, not only do we get a lot done in terms of meaningful work, but we also get that, that deeper fulfillment that comes with the, the solitude in the space. Totally. Yeah. You know, I think that God leaves clues about our potential and, and what we should do throughout nature and, and just the, the, the natural law of things. And one of those is time under tension, right? It's a, you as a physical trainer and a CrossFitter, you under, you understand the benefits of time under tension from muscle growth and all of that stuff, right? But when it comes to like actually putting ourselves to the test, we often want to avoid the tension. And it's funny because obviously pursuing resisting average, like you know, your your whole entire company requires tension. There is going to be socialization where people are when you start to resist the average that people are going to try and pull you back. And the longer you resist, the stronger you will become, right? But I want to I want to stay with this silence thing for a second because the tension in silence is like vastly more, uh, you know, strong than than anything else. And it, you, people, you know, we we talk about the awkward silence, right? Like we feel that when we're by ourselves or when we're with somebody else, like people are uncomfortable with silence. So since we've kind of both have, have acknowledged the physical stuff is, is apparent, right? You could see the fruit of that, but silence is, is more difficult. It's intangible. How do you know that silence is working for you? Absolutely. No, I love that. And I, th- I think one of the issues that we do have with silence and things with meditation that I've seen from my coaching is that, you know, people come back and say, Tommy, Mike, that's not working for me. And we, ha- we have to detach from this westernized input equals output in regards to these practices. It's not like that. It's different, it's different than physicality. So you know your bench in physicality, if you do bench three times a week for six weeks, it's, it's going to get better. That also happens with mindfulness in these practices, but that shouldn't be the core root and intention. Like we have to... Uh, there's a part of letting go. I, you know, I'm so big on setting visions and setting goals and I also think it's important sometimes to just completely let go of those for short periods of time, right? But if you're always going, always going, always going, you might wake up and realize you chased the wrong thing for the wrong reason. So for me, it's it's more of tapping into that source and without expectation. You know, I do a lot of flow tanks and I've done 120 hours in a flow tank, sensory deprivation. And I hype it up a lot because I love it because it's one of my practices of deep connection with myself, creativity disconnecting from the insanity. And, um, and, and again, like you know, I've talked about on the podcast, people say, Tommy, I did, I did the float tank and I was in there and I was so excited and, and, and nothing happened. <laughs> <laughs> They'll be so disappointed, man. And I'll say that's, uh, that's the point. Or Tommy, I was in there and my mind was racing a mile a minute. I was having thoughts that were like crazy, like serial killer stuff. Like I, I can't believe it. And I was like, that's, that's exactly why you need it. That's not a reason to run from it. That's the tension. That's gonna that's gonna help you get better at it, and and get better in the context of allow you to to get through the tension because on the other side of the tension is usually a breakthrough, is usually a message, a creative thing. So for me, those are, are it's non negotiable to have those practices. Otherwise, I feel out of alignment. I just feel out of alignment, and we've all felt that. And to me, I just 
I use a metaphor for alignment. It's like alignment are the ridges of a key and each of the ridges represents a part of ourselves. And if one of those ridges is off, we can put the key in the door and the door may represent our goals or ambitions or desires. And like things like not going to open. Like we can, we can push, we can pull, we can hustle our way through it and we can scream and yell, but it's not going to happen. But you put that thing back in alignment, you just, your, your wrist, your open, the the door opens just with your wrist, the least amount of effort. So um, that's how it helps me. But I would encourage people to disconnect from the gamification of it. And just, just when you release expectations, that's when the magic happens. But when we have all Mm -hmm. these expectations, it doesn't happen. Then we say, oh, that just wasn't for me or that doesn't work or that's a bunch of BS. And it's like, not really. It's so true because um, that actually happened. What what you said, when you release expectations, that's where the magic happens, right? And that happened in 2018 in the Winter Olympics with the Women's Super G. Did you happen to watch it? No, but I'm, I'm super intrigued. Esther Ledecka from the Czech Republic, two sport Winter Olympic athlete. No one expected her to do anything. In fact, with the Women's Super G. Her main event was snowboarding. And uh, the, the favorite for the women's Super G was Lindsey Vaughn, but she was eliminated very early on. And uh, an Austrian woman named Anna Weif actually had secured the gold medal. And she was down at the, you know, in the, in the winner's circle, people were, you know, celebrating her and giving her hugs and all of this stuff. And it was great. And NBC was the cameras on her. And then they would occasionally, Pan back to the top of the mountain where Esther Ledecka, who was in 19th place, was getting ready to ski down the mountain. And so she starts, right? She kind of jumps, pounds her chest, then she she takes off down that mountain, and you've got the commentators, and they're saying, you know, well, you know, she she's in 19th place. Good thing she's got another event coming up. Oh, look at that. She's taking a different line than all the other competitors. It's very risky. It's probably not going to work out in her favor. Blah, blah, blah. She comes around the corner. Bam. She goes from 19th place to first place because she took a different line. She let go of expectations. She had fun. She focused on skiing her best race and everybody undermined her potential. Ooh, I love that. That's so powerful. I'm going to have to dig into that story. And I mean, you can go just type in Esther Ledecka gold medal and you can watch the video. She was def- definitely hit the flow state because when she was at the bottom of the mountain, she looked at the time and at the camera and, and her jaw dropped and she said, no, no. <laughs> like what happened? You awesome. know? <laughs> and she won the gold medal, you know? And, and it reminds me of another conversation I had with an Olympian named Eli Bremer. And he said, people have to stop focusing on winning because you can win on accident, but you can only be good on purpose. Ooh, I love that. And you have to focus on what it means to be, to be good. And to be good means to be obsessed with the process, right? And because everybody wants that championship trophy, but nobody wants to do tie their shoelaces the right way at practice. So they don't get blisters so they can have a chance to perform for the gold medal or whatever it might be, right? And uh, and so we got to be obsessed with the process and and surrender the idea of winning. Because if we are obsessed with the process, 
then we we will have a chance at winning. And I think that I'd be interested in your take on this. I think that the entrepreneurial world that we live in today is obsessed with winning because that they think that winning is how they show themselves and others that they're not average, but revealing that they're obsessed with the process is something that average people do. I, I couldn't agree more. Um, I, I say, I, I just, I believe success is a process, not an event. And we're often sold on the event. We're marketed to the event. So it's the, it's the Hollywood moment. It's the Silicon Valley cash out. It's, it's the gold medal. But that's all we see. And the, the danger in this is, as you said, well, to me, it's, it's twofold. One, it's if our expectations are that and we're six months in and it's not happening, we're going to think something is wrong with us and we're just going to quit uh, or we're going to blame it. It depends. And then, um, and then the second thing is that the process is where the fulfillment and the meaning actually come in. You know, Those moments at the gold medal or winning or the cash out, I mean, they're very fleeting. It's going to be you know in entrepreneurship specifically winning is when we combine winning with the event that can be very dangerous mm-hmm. because we can we can quote unquote win but during that process we lost ourselves along the way and then we got the things that we thought we wanted and we feel much worse and so I love that you know this morning I was at a hike at four fifty a.m. and it's the same people every day. Like it's the same. 90% of the people are, it's the same people, you know? And, uh, and that's what, that's what inspires me, you know? Like seeing the same couple on the mountain, seeing the guy, he's got this, this big hat. Like I see all the same people. And then I go to the next mountain, same time, I see all the same people there. And that's just, that's the process. They're showing up when they don't feel like it, they're showing up when they're tired. They're there. I, we can count on that. We can count on the process. You and I can control the process. But we can't control the event. And what you said is great. When we focus on the event, we rarely get the result that we're looking for. When we focus on the process, many times we get the event or the result that we're looking for, and then some externally, but also internally. This episode is brought to you by the Lawton Marketing Group, a full-service advertising and design agency specializing in websites, social media, apps, logos, and more. Based in Oklahoma, they work with clients across the nation from small businesses to large corporations and everything in between. You can find them right now on the web at www.lawtonmg.com or call them at 580-275-2063. Connect with them now for a complimentary competitive analysis of your website. Just tell them the Impact Entrepreneur told you to call. So I want to talk a little bit about some of the lessons that are taught in your book, The Leap of Your Life. So when, when someone is, is feeling that gut instinct, that they're stuck, that they're kind of in the, in the average, what are some ways that they can explore what drives them? Maybe they need to crystallize that. They, they need to kind of get rid of some of the clutter. What are some of the things that, that they should do to begin to discover what drives them? Yeah, you know, I have tons of strategies. One is 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 one that we've likely heard, but it's just it's going five, seven, eight, ten years down the line, and and just kind of reverse engineering and saying, okay, I wake up in a decade. We wake up in a decade. We wake up on the verge of twenty thirty, which is kind of weird to say. 
what would have to happen? Like, what, 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 what does my life look like then? And that's one, that's like the positive visualization. And then there's another one, which I use a lot to, to create catalyst for behavioral change, which is, okay, you are feeling stuck. You're going down a path that you know is not for you. You've been there for maybe a couple months, maybe a couple years. Now let's go five years down the line and nothing has changed, except things are worse because you're battered emotionally from not changing, but then externally you're in the same place. What does that feel like? Mm. Right, so I like to use, I, I think, just the in studying so much human behavior change, it's like just the model of, of running from a pain or being pulled by something that's meaningful or like it's a vision of, of something we desire. There's always that in the, in the in-between to drive behavior change is, is a beautiful intersection. So those are two of the things that, that um, I would start. One of the reasons that you talked about tension in solitude, one of the reasons why we don't seek solitude or... You know, I, I catch myself like the, the the moment an uncomfortable feeling or insight comes in, it's automatically I will go to I will like pull the phone out, even if it's something really small, right? But on a macro level, for such a plugged in society, what happens is that we avoid the silence because there's going to be some stuff that's going to come up that we just don't like. Mm-hmm. So avoidance becomes much more becomes a great solution, but like avoidance, lead, you know, three, five, 10 years of avoidance, we're going to miss out. So radical honesty is the first step to change anything. So it's like, you know, I always tell people, it's like, well, if you take non-emotional inventory of your life, just like non-emotional inventory, we're not going to wrap over emotions and stories and narratives and beliefs and excuses and all of the stuff that really kills clarity. But if you just take non-emotional inventory in the three, four, five areas of life, you know, people have all these different systems. Yeah. Just asking yourself, like, you know, is is this where I want to be? How am I showing up physically? How am I? Where is my career going as a as a creator, entrepreneur, or working for somebody else? How is my relationship? And not interjecting that with emotions. That's that's a beautiful place to start. Mm, mm, I love the idea of non emotional inventory. Yeah, I mean it's 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 really powerful when you can when you can do that. I also find that something that's very emotional. That can also drive change and not necessarily drive change, but really crystallize some things for you. Yes. Is writing your own eulogy. Have you ever done that? I love that. And I have because one of my mentors, Dr. Don Martini, has a course called Master Planning and it's every January. And I've done that a couple of times. But the eulogy is powerful. One of the practices that I do once every three or four weeks, I was doing it bi weekly, but it's been about one every three, four weeks is to actually head to the cemetery. And the reason I do that is because one, it's it's a very grounding place, and two, it's um it's a reminder, it's a mm-hmm. reminder, mm-hmm. right? And uh, you know, Steve Jobs' comm- commencement speech is so great because uh, you know he talks about how in the face of death, th- th- there's only a few things that matter, mm-hmm. and so like going there for me, beginning with the end in mind, it's like okay, am I am I on uh, like? What can I delete that has gotten in the way, right? And that gives me a lot of clarity. So I love, I love those type of exercises. I mean, they're not for the faint of heart, but the whole point is to tap into that. And what you said is, is crucial because yes, we start with non-emotional inventory. The next step is actually to amplify the emotion mm-hmm. after you've gotten radically honest. The reason we don't do the emotion first is because often that can cloud the clarity. But once you're clear, so let's just say you're clear, you're on the wrong career path, you hate it, it's not like this is not for you. Then we actually amplify that emotion. Mm-hmm. Because as mm-hmm. humans, we're so good at ad- adaptation. Like we yeah. can adapt to anything. We can, you know, the the circumstance that was once so painful now becomes 
new reality that is that is normal, right? Like how does somebody how does somebody wake up at three hundred and seventy five pounds? Mm-hmm. Well, they normalized one seventy five. They normalized two twenty. They normalized three hundred, and then they normalized three seventy five. But in the moment, that was a really painful circumstance that they felt compelled to change. Mm-hmm. But if they miss the window of change, then it becomes a new normal. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I wrote my eulogy at the beginning of this year and at my mastermind group, and we all read them. It took me 10 minutes to get through mine because I was bawling my eyes out because I wrote it. I have four kids. I wrote it from the point of view of my adult son. That's my, awesome. my, my oldest son. I have two boys and two girls, and I wrote it from the point of view of... And I'm still I'm getting emotional even thinking about it, but from... And it's just like... It crystallizes so much the impact that you want to have. Like the real... The real, like, forget about money. Money doesn't matter, you know. Like the, the if I were to title my eulogy, the eulogy I wrote, it would be uh, a legacy of light, right? Love like, that. Um, that I put down other people's lamps so that I could pick up my own and light the way for others, right? Ooh, powerful. We have to light. We have to pick up our own lamps, right, in order to light the way for others. We have to. We can't, we have to put down the the light that other people tried to put in our hand. Your your parents, for example, right? My father, you know, all of whomever it might be that tried to project something on you because maybe they love you, maybe they had a, an unmet expectation of their own, yep. a dream unfulfilled that they wanted to see fulfilled in you that they could live vicariously. But but you have to have the courage to put down those things to take in the story of David and Goliath to take off the armor that Saul put on David and step out and face Goliath wearing nothing but your, you know, cassock and having your slingshot in hand so that you can perform optimally what you were created to do. And if we don't do that, then we're going to feel this awkwardness, right? This discomfort, this frustration, right? And it's going to it's going to seep into every single area of our life, our health, our wealth, our spiritual, mm-hmm. our emotional, our relational. And, uh, but, but one of the things that I think keeps people from taking the leap, and I, I just have... like the only, the only beef I have with the word leap is that I don't think it actually does justice to the message of what you're trying to do. Because I don't think you're necessarily telling people to just jump off the cliff without a parachute, right? Like that would be reckless. You're not telling people to be reckless. You're tell- telling people to be bold and to act, right? But to do so with, with a plan, right? To have a plan in place and to do the work in the front end so that they can thrive today, tomorrow, and in the, in the future. But one of the things that holds people back is the idea of failure, right? Is the idea that they take that leap and they fail, and then people look at them and say, "See, I told you so." You know, how do you coach people to deal with that fear, like pers- like pushing through that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, I always use fear as leverage because I think I think we we have this myth that when we 
achieve something or create something or have a certain amount in the bank account, then the fear is going to be eradicated. And that's never true. It just transforms itself. So in, in one of the books in The Leap, I talk about Elizabeth Gilbert, she's a writer, author. And um, you know her fear went from, is anybody ever going to care to, I sold 15 million copies of this book, Eat, Pray, Love. Is my work best? It's my best work behind me for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. Same fear. It just transformed based on her circumstance and based on our involvement. It's like the same thing for us, right? So, can we reframe our relationship as fear and use it as leverage to do something? And in the fear of failure, it's you know what we don't. The unseen is haunting, and what I mean by that is, if we give into the fear of failure because we believe that. If we fall on our face, what are people going to say? The thing is, when we act bold, when we are courageous, like you're, you're thinking about David and Goliath, when we put ourselves out there, I like to think of it as like, you know, I'm in this room and, and when you put yourself out there, you, you have one door that you're going through and you can see the door and you have a, maybe have a plan for that door and all of that stuff, but there's no other doors around. Like, this is my door. This is what I'm doing. This is the business I'm launching, whatever it is. The thing that you don't recognize is that Let's just say you fail and it doesn't come to life. By stepping through that door, now you noticed three other doors just appeared out of nowhere. Mm. Now, you couldn't see the three doors without stepping through that first one. And all I mean by that is that there are so many opportunities. There are so much perspective. There is so much learning. There are so many things that can happen on the other side of that first quote-unquote failure. But if you're not willing to walk through that first door, none of it's going to come to life. Totally. I love that. You know, I think that that is definitely, that is the, the benefit of failure, right? Like if, like you could say, okay, there, there, there really, failure is a, the failure myth, right? Because really when we're talking about failure, it's at the end of the day, we're really afraid of the feedback that we're going to get from other people, right? The, the people that are the stakeholders in our life, whether it's your wife, kids, parents, whatever. But really like, they're, they're, look at all of the products that we use every day that are the result of a failure. Velcro, Post-it notes, you know, all of those things, right? That have gone on to be these staple products in every single home. I have this this guy I want to introduce you to. I don't I, I don't know if he's re, his team's reached out to your show or not, but his name is John Foley. He's the a former uh, the former lead solo pilot for the Blue Angels. Oh, nice! That's awesome. And he definitely would be a great guest for your show because definitely uh, he's had to resist average in, in order to perform at the level he's performed at in, in his life. But one of the, the things he taught me on our, our conversation is the difference between being scared and afraid. Ooh. And being scared, he basically said, is flying upside down in formation 18 inches from each other because you should be because if something goes wrong like it's a, it's a life and death moment right but you have but you're you're scared because it's a healthy fear because you're you're doing something that's pushing the boundaries of your comfort level that's yeah. okay right but you're you you're going to do your job and you're going to trust others to do their job and you're not going to worry about what they're doing because you're going to be so intensely focused about knowing your role, doing your job, and trusting 
your team members to do the same. Being afraid is the opposite of that. It is doing something that is pushing your boundaries and your comfort zone and not trusting others to know their role and to do their job, right? Love that. Yeah. And uh, it, was, it was super powerful. So I'd love to, to, under, to learn from you what is something with that under, with the definition of that understanding the difference between being scared and afraid what is something that scares you yeah no i love that that's so powerful and i love that you said the part on trust <laughs> nothing tangible comes to mind although i know it's there i just think let me let me rephrase it to a yeah. what is something that makes you uncomfortable but you do it anyway because you know what you're capable of and you've got people around you who are capable as well and you have developed a relationship of trust with them and you know that they're going to do their job they're going to uh, they know their role which empowers you to know your job and know your role yeah no i love that i mean for me you know every every time i i create you know there's you know there's a sense of you know, be, there's a, a, an underlying sense of being scared. I mean, I, I think that's the litmus test to know that you're doing something that's meaningful, challenging, and has the potential for impact. So, yeah, any anytime I create, especially when it's it's something that involves a lot of time and energy, like a book, which you now have experience with, there's that underlying feeling of of being scared. There's that, you know, every right, every creator has has the thought that goes, you know, is anybody gonna care? Is anybody gonna listen? I mean, even on podcasts, like even creating a podcast, creating a book, whatever it is. So, but if I tie in the thing about trust, I love that because it's it's self-trust, but it's also trust in people, places, um, possibly fans, readers, listeners that you don't even know are out there. Mm-hmm. Right, so that's that's how I would answer that. But I love that. I, I love. I think I think that's the right answer too. I mean, not that there's a wrong answer, but I think that what you said at the beginning about that being scared is the litmus test to knowing that you're doing something that has the potential to be great is is that's the truth, right? Like that's how that's how you know sports psychologists would would talk about like to reframe that and to and to affirm yourself. For saying I'm doing something great here, I'm doing I'm I'm about to perform at a championship level. I'm about to do X, Y, and Z. I'm about to potentially impact millions of lives, you know. And and at the same time, being okay with never seeing the fruit of your labor. That to me is is a, a core tenant of defining mastery. Yeah, it's hard, man. I think about these, uh, what, these what are called the living root bridges in India, in a specific part of India. They're, you've probably seen them in Indiana Jones movies, but they're 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 actual bridges made of roots that are they go from one side of the the shore to the other, and they can take up to thirty years to fully construct before they're safe to cross. But they're there to help one uh, villagers get from one side of the river to the other. And yet they can li- they can last for 600 plus years. The oldest one is 600 years old. Might have taken 20 or 30 years 
to build, perhaps some of the people that worked on constructing that never even got to cross it, yet their legacy is still there 600 years later. That's powerful. You know, so here are those. That's that's how I define mastery. It's like, it's, it's exactly what you just said. Yeah. It's, 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 it's it's committing to a craft or creation, whatever it is for the sole act of the creating of it. mm -hmm. And then going back to releasing expectations, releasing expectations, anything else. I know just in a micro sense, I release like a good amount of content every single week. The content that I put out that, I can just, I can, you know, I can just put out and I feel no emotion behind it always falls flat. The one that I'm, I'm like, should I click set on this? Should I, should I send this email? I'm about to post this. I have some hesitation. Those are the ones that knock it out of the park because your experience, you're, you're, you're having that, that litmus test is in front of you mm-hmm. and it's, I think that's what we should that that should be the litmus test of meaning and quality of anything we do, even if it's just conversation. Mm-hmm. There's mm-hmm. some questions that you've asked me here that I've really had to think that have made me slightly uncomfortable, and like that's an amazing thing. That's the whole point. Mm-hmm. That's like that, that's why we're here. Yeah, I mean that's the brilliant thing about the podcast medium because it actually does provide in the moment discoveries, right? If if the if the questioning is not straight a, a straight Q and A interview style, but an actual conversation, like exactly. two people having a you know an, an immunity aid from Life Aid Beverage Company here in Santa Cruz, California, you know, <laughs> do they sponsor Impact yet? <laughs> they, they don't, but um, All right. but Aaron, we'll, we'll have to get them. <laughs> Aaron on it, yeah. Man, this has been a wonderful conversation. And before we wrap, I want to make sure that people can connect with you and and head to Amazon and pick up a copy of Take the Leap of Your Life um, or buy it directly from your website, you point them in the direction where you want them to go. And we'll be sure to link to it in the show notes. Absolutely. And it's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah. If if this resonated, obviously you listen to podcasts. We got the Resist Average Academy, um, which Mike is, is about to be guest on. And then Leap of Your Life is on Amazon or uh, resistaverageacademy.com. Awesome. Right on. First question. If you can pick any skill set that you currently possess, so a skill you, you already have, and turn it into a superpower, what would it be? Yeah. I mean, the, the, the skill that I'm obsessed with has to be writing. Hmm. Hmm. That'd be it. What about writing? How would writing turn into a superpower? You're, you're, you're downloading something from the ether that didn't, didn't exist prior. Mm. Right? And so, so if you just take that in that context, imagine that that becomes... Like you walk out into the world and, uh, and the things that you could do with that. Mm. Totally. That's yeah. my favorite. Like, as a writer myself, I, I, I <laughs> can relate to that. To know the words to write that would have the most instantaneous life-changing impact and the exact way to, communi- to communicate it to you know, the billions of different people that live on the planet. I mean, that would be... Yeah, imagine that. Without any of the, the, the craziness that comes with it. <laughs> right. Totally. Yes, I know. Yeah, I, um, I know that you published your most recent book with Wiley. I considered doing the traditional route and ultimately, I just... I went self-published. I collaborated with Scribe 
on the book launch. I wrote, I scribe typically ghostwrite, but my book's a fictional story. So it's a parable. And so I had already written, and there's when we when I'm on your show, I, I can share the whole entire saga behind my publishing experience because it was it almost didn't happen. And uh, but Scribe has been an incredible partner in helping put bring the book out into the world on the distribution. Awesome. So, yeah, love Tucker, Zach, those guys they do great work. Yeah, those guys are awesome. Yeah. Next question: What are three lies that we tell ourselves that prevent us from realizing what we're truly capable of? I don't have enough time. I don't know how. And then someday. Mm, those are which one's the one that you grapple with the most? The first one, even though I teach everything, a lot of what I teach is eradicating that. It just it's such an easy one to believe because it's so pervasive. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And if we tell, if I tell myself I don't have enough time, then I'm operating out of scarcity. Right. Operating out of scarcity. How am I showing up? Mm, totally. Yeah, not not with abundance, that's for sure. Yeah. And that what 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 ends up happening is like if you are feeling scarce, even if you have abundance, what you'll end up doing is you'll just like, you know, hoard it. You'll be an abundance yeah. hoarder, right? Yes. And that's not what abundance is all about. Abundance, as one of my mentors says, abundance is created to flow to you and through you. And that's Love it. That. Love that. Yeah. Last question. It's a hundred years from now. And you have left a, a set of written instructions for a biographer to come up with a, a biography that will answer this question posed by Clay Christensen. How will Tommy Baker measure his life? What would those instructions include? What would, what would you want to be featured majorly in your biography? Now, granted, we still have a lot of life left in front of us, but up to this point. Absolutely. So there would be... He left the room better than he found it. He gave other people permission. Helped give themselves permission, which is really what that is. And he left it all out on the field. Tommy Baker, it has been an absolute pleasure and honor to have you on the Impact Entrepreneur Show. Thank you for sharing your story, for breathing life into my audience, and for pursuing the the, the truth in, in your life and creating the impact that you were designed to have in the world. Mike, it means the world, man. We went deep, which is how I like to roll. So I appreciate uh, you having me on the show. And uh, I'm super inspired by your message. So keep going, man. Thank you, brother. Thank you to this week's guest and thank you for listening. If you missed any of the key points and highlights from my conversation, we've got you covered over at theimpactentrepreneur.net forward slash podcast for show notes to each and every episode. And while you are there, check out Flynn Wealth Strategies and Insurance Solutions. You can do that by visiting flynnwealthstrategies.com. The Lot Marketing Group and the Podcast Masters. We could not do this show without them and with all of their support. Now, until next time, go make an impact.